to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. So today's guest is the infamous Rory Sutherland. So Rory is the vice chairman of Ogilvy UK, and he also heads up their behavioral science practice. And he is, believe me, 100% human and 100% imaginal and a wonderful storyteller. So I'm very, very excited about this. But before I introduce you to Rory, you will know by now that most of the people that I invite to be a guest on Humans Leading Humans are senior leaders from big, complex companies. Um, and I've explained why in previous podcasts. And Rory is a leader in a big, complex company, but he is also a behavioral expert. He helps clients move past assumptions of what we should be doing to really understand how the human brain operates, the cognitive biases, so that they can move beyond the 30 second ad to work with the way our brains work so they can design better and more effective behavioral interventions that work the way that humans work. And you know that every week I share the CREATE framework with my guests and their challenge is to share three leadership stories that are triggered by the framework. But a couple of people have come back to me and asked, what is the CREATE framework? So let me just reiterate this. So in the Bible, according to BEEP, a leader's only job is to create environments where humans thrive, not survive. These environments, the culture, sits on particular pillars, if you like, or conditions. So the CREATE framework, after 20 years of helping companies through, through change, I've pulled together all of the conditions, the core elements of what a really good culture looks like. You know, productive culture, an efficient culture, an agile culture, whatever. So C stands for things like communication and collaboration and community. R stands for reward and recognition and respect. E is for empathy and empowerment and encouragement. And A is for autonomy and accountability and T is for trust and transparency. I'm not going to go through all of them. And if you want to go and find out more about the CREATE framework, go and check out at catskeely.com. But the point is that CREATE leaders know that if they nurture cultures that tick all of these boxes, they will get the very best from their people. People in these cultures are more innovative, they're more creative, they're less change resistant. And all of this is based on behavioral science. So in the coming weeks, I will be inviting and we'll be having some incredible guests, people who are my guiding lights, uh, people like uh, Amy Edmondson and Dan Ariely and more. And so that they can explain why CREATE Framework works, 
Because once you understand the way the human brain works, once you understand our biases, once you understand why we've got these ingrained resistance to change, etc., it totally changes the way that we need. Before I introduce you to Rory, I just want to, as always, say a really massive thank you, massive thank you to all of those people who reach out to me on LinkedIn and on catskeely.com and send me feedback and suggestions for what you didn't understand, what you really liked, what you'd like to see more of. Your feedback is really important to me. It energizes me. And remember, I believe that everything can be better always. So your feedback helps to keep improving this so I can make sure I'm giving you what you need to be better. Enough of all that. Meet Rory Sutherland. Rory Sutherland, I'm so chuffed that you are a guest on Humans Leading Humans. Now, our little ritual in Humans Leading Humans is I always have to remember how I've met somebody. Um, a really amazing woman called Nicole Yershon, who used to work at Ogilvy, introduced me to Rory some time ago. And when I'm in conversation with Rory about anything, he always reminds me of a jazz musician. It's like we start somewhere we're expecting, it goes somewhere completely not, and somehow he'll manage to bring it back to exactly where it needs to be. So I don't know about you, dear listeners, but I'm really excited about today's conversation. So Rory, just so people know, if they don't know who you are already, how did you get to where you are? Uh, it's a long story. I can't really call it a career path because it's simply not that linear. I joined Ogilvy. I was a teacher for a time, a trainee teacher. And I had a kind of, I suppose, a kind of panic attack, which is I realised that if I left university and went straight into teaching again, I would end up having spent my entire life in educational establishments. And I realised I had a kind of claustrophobic attack. And I realised that even if I taught, eventually I'd have to do something else first. And um, that was during a, a term spent teaching, actually, at a school where I saw, having been to university, we were now back to disciplining people who had been caught smoking behind the bike sheds which almost felt to me regressive. By the way, I was in some ways, I was a terrible teacher in the sense that I could never really bring it to my, on myself to punish people for smoking behind the bike sheds. Because being a bit of a maverick, I found the maintenance of those levels of discipline kind of uncomfortable, actually, because I would have been the person smoking behind the bike sheds. So I, I applied to various ad agencies. I think I got second interviews with three, got a final job with possibly... By chance, one of the best places you ever could have got a job at that time, which is 1988, September 1988, which was uh, Ogilvy & Mather Direct. A great guy, still alive, still the guru of uh, direct marketing, copywriting, really, called Drayton Bird, was the chairman and executive creative director. And there were various people there, Steve Harrison, Randy Hanfelder, Mike Sim. But it was a bit like being in a Paris cafe where everybody really interesting would have appeared in the building at some point. You know, they always said, if you sit at Les Deux Magots or whatever it is, you'll eventually see everybody. 
And that would have been true, I guess, in the 1920s. And this was kind of true of Ogilvy and Mather Direct then. And I, I, I joined as a graduate trainee. I was supposed to be an account man. I was terrible at it. I was briefly a planner where I was OK. But when we did our first induction into the agency, you spent two weeks in the creative department. And I did two weeks as a copywriter with a great guy called Jerry Hanfelder. And I just decided then and there that that was ultimately what I wanted to do. And so eventually I got fired, which was actually very fortunate, although it didn't seem so at the time, because it forced me to reapply to the creative department as a copywriter. And because two, far, to be honest, far more promising candidates than me dropped out, I ended up getting the job. And then over time became head of copy, creative director, uh, then vice chairman of Ogilvy. I was president of the IPA 2009 to 2011, where my agenda was getting in the agency world, far more au fait with behavioural science and psychology, almost redraperizing the business. I think we need to bring some of the Don Draper stuff back, to be honest. And okay, then, let me just stop you there for a second, just in case the people course. who are listening to this don't know who Ron Draper is. Can you just explain? So Don Draper's the character in the wonderful series called Mad Men, set in American advertising from the 1950s to the late 60s. And it's enjoyable simply for the period detail, but it's doubly enjoyable, of course, if you work in advertising. And my point was that back in the 50s and 60s, um, agencies would have contained psychologists on the payroll. For a variety of complex reasons, this stopped happening. I think part of it was they made so much money making TV commercials, they didn't really worry that much about the other aspects of how you could be using creativity to add value when TV commercials were more or less a license to print money at the time. But my contention was that actually now we're paid by the hour, we need to bring that back. There are far more ways you can be creatively valuable than simply within the narrow straitjacket of bought media solutions. And so I've made that my IPA agenda really, for 2009, 2011. And then when I returned to Ogilvy, they asked me to start a behavioural science practice within the agency, which is what we've now done. It's now about a little over 20 people, mostly, but not exclusively, social science graduates of some kind, whether it's behavioural science or, for example, organisational psychology or evolutionary psychology. We've got a bunch of mostly younger people in their 20s and 30s, some older uh, whose expertise essentially and academic background lies in this area. And we do it, what we might call applied behavioral science, using the insights from behavioral science to solve real world business and social problems. Ooh, excellent. I didn't know. I didn't know you used to be a teacher, Rory. So I'm learning something about you now. This is great. Okay. So I sent you the Create framework and asked you to tell three short stories. And in your case, actually talk about probably the science behind some of those stories. What is your story number one? Well, the first thing is, I mean, this, I think, was probably predicted by my failure at account management. I'm not very good at management, and I wouldn't claim to be. I can do leadership, and I can do encouragement, and I can do direction setting, and I can broaden people's area of inquiry fairly effectively. But if... I'm a very hands-off manager. You have to remember, I probably am, to be honest, post-rationalizing this. I'm not only a hands-off manager because I believe it pays to a great deal. 
particularly in a creative environment where, after all, if people come up with a solution you would have come up with yourself, you're not really doing your job as a manager. Your job is to get people to produce things that you yourself probably wouldn't have done. But it's also, it's if you like, making a virtue of necessity. I'm just not very good at, at micromanagement in particular. I find the administrative side of management, rather as I found the disciplinary side of being a schoolmaster, uh, I think I'm a kind of a narco-libertarian in some respects. And so I'm also grew up in Wales, and I'm part Welsh, which tends to have a much more horizontal social structure. The Celtic cultures, like New Zealand, like places like that, tend to be less hierarchical in any case. So I'm just instinctively not very comfortable bossing people around. I'm very happy to make suggestions, but I'm not really very happy issuing edicts. And it only occurred to me later that actually in a creative setting, to a large extent, that's the right approach. Because the best thing you can do is help someone define a problem, but leave them to solve the problem. And actually, that's a lesson I think I've come down to. I think Einstein himself, it's, it's a bit naff to quote Einstein, and not all the quotes are genuine. But I think he said something like, if you gave me 100 hours to, to solve a problem, I'd spend 99 hours defining the problem, or indeed redefining it, and then an hour solving it. I think that's actually an important lesson, which is, I think probably Peter Drucker, who said there's nothing more depressing to see an organization doing efficiently that which it should not be doing at all. And quite commonly, we see enormous examples in organizations of misapplied effort, where everybody's assumed that the logical way to solve problem X is typically by doing the opposite of X, i.e. tackling the problem head on. Whereas in many cases, if problem X persists and the logical response to X doesn't seem to be working, well, the likelihood is that the logical solution just doesn't work in any case. So you've got to try something different and you've got to try something oblique. Maybe you've got to try something at a different scale to the scale at which the problem becomes apparent. Because one of the problems with business hierarchies is that problems get defined and decided by people at the top who then assume that the problem has to be solved at the top. And quite often, the scale at which a problem becomes apparent is different to the scale at which it can be usefully solved. So handing off to other people, and specifically people more junior than you who are much closer to the where the tires hit the tarmac, is not only an act of delegation, it's actually an act of creating a more diverse cognitive approach because the person on the ground might be able to tell you that the problem originates from something entirely different to that which you assumed. And so that business of diversity where I'm quite generally bullish about the prospects for video conferencing, because one of the unintended consequences of video conferencing is it's easier to hold meetings with a range of people present and from a range of departments. You know, we got into this habit, I think, where marketing meetings happened in the marketing department and you invited a load of marketing people. And there's a great book, actually, by Gillian Tett called The Silo Effect on how businesses are divided into different compartments, often semi-watertight compartments, driven by the need for both measurement and clarity and focus. But that when you do that, there are various hidden prices that you pay for that focus and clarity, which is that in many cases, 
the problems that need to be solved perhaps require coordination between one or more departments or problems that emerge in one department are actually being caused by another and so an attempt to solve it internally is to some extent doomed to failure there's a wonderful example of this kind of complex uh, example where people with conflicting metrics can end up essentially destroying economic value which i think used to happen in the potato crisp industry where the main cost of making crisps was heating the fat enough effectively to make the crisps crispy by boiling off the water but the people who sold potatoes to crisp manufacturers were paid on weight so before they delivered the paid potatoes they used to spray them all down with water in order to <laughs> in order to increase the weight of the payload when it was weighed on arrival at the factory and so you had an absolute case where you had two incentives essentially operating at loggerheads and so i'm quite optimistic about zoom in that anything that first of all replaces written communication with chat or talk which is much less focused and actually much more tangential and often irrelevant which is sometimes the digressions that happen when you talk which don't happen when you write are actually where most of the value of the information is contained and so the fact that zoom conversations like this are slightly ill disciplined you use the metaphor of jazz isn't necessarily a weakness it might be a strength I could not agree with you more. And also going back to your point about two things, one about um, refining challenges. It's a problem that we see over and over again, that actually people, even leaders, even SVP level leaders, um, see that the problems in front of them are so huge. Yeah. There's nothing we can do. It has to be done by the board. It's structural. Well, yeah, but if you actually stop for a second and look at the bite-size elements of that bigger problem, and especially if you bring a bunch of people from different silos together to actually find solutions, it's amazing what you can do. So There's a beautiful advertising story from that, which I think involved a planner at AMV BBDO when they were repitching successfully, as it turned out, Sainsbury's. And they were told the company's financial targets, which effectively involved a billion or more revenue increase year on year. And the planner in the room looked at that, thought that it was impossible, but divided it by the number of store visits per year and said, effectively, if you can get everybody who pitches through the door of Sainsbury's to spend an extra pound, you've met your targets per visit. And that's a case where you make an intractable problem, which you assume has to be solved at the senior level. Those of you who are interested in anarchism, there's a great book called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott, which makes this point, which is that the very information that aggregates and therefore the information that reaches the top is riven with things like averages and aggregates, and it loses a huge amount of nuance on the way up. And so the state attempts to issue instructions to people on the ground in accordance with its very peculiar view of the world. And so the example was, for example, in forestry, you measured the value of the weight of trees per acre and you measured foresters on that, but you didn't measure the undergrowth. Now, it turns out if you try and maximize trees per acre and you get rid of all the undergrowth, after about five years, the soil becomes peculiarly unproductive. Yeah. And so the thing that was actually making the trees grow in the first place wasn't included in the calculus of the people at the top who are looking at a highly aggregate view of 
trees per acre. Okay. Mm -hmm. And therefore they neglected and then unintentionally destroyed the very thing which was driving productivity to begin with. Yeah. I think I think that happens with culture, by the way, which is that the aggregate view of employees is a narrow function of time versus cost. Okay, so if you look at labor economics, it's essentially the reason we call pay compensation is it compensates you for your loss of leisure. So the general way in which employees are looked at is how many how many of the buggers we have, how much they get paid and how long they spend working for us on the assumption that hours spent are proportional to value created, for example. And on the assumption that wider cultural matters don't matter and on the dangerous assumption that the only way to incentivize these people is to give them more money or less work, because that's the foundational assumption of labor economics. And what I found very interesting when the pandemic came in, and this one of my other stories will talk about this, is I've been experimenting with Zoom and remote working and flexible working before the pandemic happened, because a very astute person in Ogilvy IT had taken on an Ogilvy Zoom account, I think technically uh, breaking WPP regulations, <laughs> but he'd signed us up for a Zoom account. And being a bit of a nerd, I'd experimented with it and found it was disproportionately better than any technology I'd used before, to a point where I thought it could be a game changer. And what suddenly occurred to me through doing this was that people don't necessarily want more money, although they do. People don't necessarily want more free time, although they do, but that's not the limitation of their ambitions. If you give people free where and free when, and also a colleague of mine, Brian Featherstonehall, who you must interview, by the way, for this podcast, he also added to that free who. He said, if you're working where you want to, if you have freedom of a degree of freedom of place and you have a degree of freedom of when, which is, yes, you have to work eight hours a day on average, but it doesn't have to be between nine and five. You can pick up your kids and you can, uh, you know, go and work in the evening, for example. People value that even though it doesn't actually change the number of hours worked or the amount they're being paid. That autonomy has a value all of itself. And I learned this before I'd even started experimenting with Zoom. With a very interesting thing, I had a PA who was a single mum. And um, I said to her, look, very simply, I keep very eccentric hours myself. I'm not remotely interested in your precise timekeeping. And I knew she was a single mum. So I thought, well, let's have a conversation about how we can enable you to be the best mum you can, while also being the best PA you can, without starting from the assumption that you pitch up at the office at nine o'clock, which is exactly when your son would start school. So the first thing I said is, to be absolutely honest, if you take your son to school in the morning at nine o'clock, let's say I'm trying to find a client's offices and I'm confused. OK, I'd much prefer you to be on a mobile phone above ground taking your son to work than on the tube and completely inaccessible. So I don't really care what time you turn up in the office. And we ended up with an arrangement where she would sometimes go home early. But then she'd work in the evenings and that suited me because I work in the evening so I could get an instant response to her. She was working when her son had gone to sleep. I get then get an instant response from her at 10 o'clock in the evening. Now, being able to ring her at 10 o'clock in the evening without feeling guilty is quite valuable. But then other things started happening. So I used to post all my expenses to her home and she could do them then while watching telly or looking after her son rather than having to do them sitting in the office. And so the point was that 
There's a tendency, I think, among hardcore kind of people who consider themselves capitalists to view any kind of perk as a concession and therefore somehow an impurity to this complete process of optimizing efficiency through conformity. No, no, no. My argument is about capitalism is a discovery process, and it's a discovery process between employer and employee about how we can actually maximize value created for employer and shareholder and customer at the same time as maximizing value and minimizing unnecessary cost on the part of the worker. And the, this should be an exploratory and experimental process. Now, I'll take this a bit further, okay, because we've got a marketing audience here, right? Now, everybody's asking the question, this shows how our need for control dominates things. Should I allow my staff to work flexibly? Okay, because you control your staff and you're responsible for them and you're responsible for maximizing their productivity as you see it. But there's another question I'd like a marketer to ask, which is, do I want my customers to work flexibly? Because the answer there is a definite yes. Because if you think about it, the typical young London employee, 50% of their after-tax salary goes on accommodation costs and transport costs. If you can take a third of the British population and move a chunk of their after-tax salary away from non-discretionary expenses like accommodation and transport, commuting in particular, and put that money into their pockets, okay, then there isn't a single consumer goods company, with the possible exception of the Duke of Westminster, if you're a major London landowner, or Transport for London. Okay, who wouldn't benefit from an explosion in the amount of discretionary income available to employees? Absolutely. So, Mike, there's a rumor, I don't think it's true, but there's a rumor that Unilever created dress down Fridays so that people would wear more laundered clothes and fewer dry cleaning. <laughs> So there's always this rumour that Unilever instigated Dress Down Fridays and kind of promoted it because if you wear chinos and a Hawaiian shirt, you put them in the washing machine, whereas if you wear a suit, everything but the shirt and pants basically get dry cleaned, OK? And the rumour was that. that Unilever created this. As a, now, there is a bit of truth, even if Unilever didn't do this. I've, I, Henry Ford gave his staff a two-day weekend because he thought that if workers had longer weekends, they'd be more likely to buy cars. And in the same way, there's an equally important point, which is that um, there is some evidence that the state of Hawaii created Aloha Fridays to help the local Hawaiian shirt industry. So it was permissible to wear a Hawaiian shirt into the office on Fridays in, in Hawaii in, I think, the 1950s, because it was Aloha Fridays. And that was there to help the indigenous shirt industry. Makes absolutely that sense. Question, that question seems to me important. If you're Unilever, you should be encouraging flexible working in your staff not only because it may well make them more productive in and of themselves, and it also means they won't leave, which is not an irrelevant factor, but also because if that behaviour spreads to your customers, you're in for a bonanza. Yes, as always, Rory. Hmm. Story number two. Excellent. Story number two is related to this. It's a lesson I learned about all business decision-making, and it worries me a lot. Now, obviously, Ogilvy has always been quite a big B2B agency. 
And you always get these two schools of thought, one of which is that marketing and advertising don't work in B2B because everybody makes a completely rational decision based on, you know, the optimization of utility to cost. You know, it's a simple equation. And then the other school of thought is actually people making business decisions are just like consumers. They're as much affected by emotion, presentation and, and so forth and framing as everything else. And there's a bit of truth to both points of view. Undoubtedly, business decisions tend to have more requirement for self-justification than consumer decisions do. I've never asked to face a board and explain why I bought KFC-flavoured crisps. Okay? It's also true to say that business decisions involve a high degree of emotion, but the emotion is slightly different. And the way I always frame this as a kind of aphorism, it's not strictly speaking perfectly true, but it's a convenient phrase, is that when consumers make a purchase decision, they're trying to minimize the risk of regret. And when business people make a decision, they're trying to minimize the risk of blame. By which I mean that in business, it's more important that you can defend your decision as one that is seemingly rational and inescapably logical than it is that you make a good decision. So doing something which you think instinctively might work, but which is seemingly counterintuitive or illogical, is career-threatening, even if it works. Because in the event that it fails, you lose your job. and the event that it works, you don't get the credit because everybody says, well, we're succeeding because of our superior supply chain management. They'll always attribute success to the rational component of business not the emotional component. And if anything goes wrong, they'll always attach blame to an emotional decision, not to a rational decision. So when you're trying to minimize blame, you have a very strong behavioral bias, which is either to do something that seems blindly obvious or to do what everybody else does or what you've always done before, because you're then minimizing the chance that anybody notices that you've even taken a decision at all. And my argument is that's why they're four big accountancy firms. Now, how did I notice this in the office, this extraordinary bias, which is technically called defensive decision making? It happens in medicine, by the way, where people know that if I intervene and send this person for exploratory surgery, if the person dies, I won't get sued. If I do nothing, I might get sued. Therefore, even though I think the best course of action is to do nothing and wait, I will send them in to go and see somebody else to avoid the risk of litigation or blame. And the thing I noticed at work is whenever I needed to fly to New York, which was sort of once a year or so, I'd always go to the company travel agent or you'd go to your PA, and they'd always come back with a list of flights from Heathrow to JFK. And I said, yeah, the thing is here, I'd say, is our office is closer at the time. It was closer to Newark than to JFK because it was on the west side of Manhattan. I prefer Newark Airport anyway. I think it's a better airport. And I live a lot closer to London City and Gatwick than I do to Heathrow. So why are you just giving me Heathrow JFK flights? And I have to go and say, please tell me about flights from Newark, flights from London City, flights from elsewhere. And then eventually, because I told them to, they'd come back with those flights. And then I realized what's going on here. Okay. If you put me on a flight from JFK to Heathrow or vice versa, if anything goes wrong, I blame British Airways because you haven't really taken a decision. You've just gone with the lazy default, right? Yeah, you, know, you know, bloody air traffic controllers, you know, oh, there's fog at Heathrow. Oh, bloody hell, I've been delayed. Or bloody old well, British Airways didn't get the plane ready. You know, blah, 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 blah. But the person who books the ticket is completely absolved from blame. OK, if you book your boss from London City or Newark, OK, it might be a much better decision overall 
But if anything goes wrong, you're now in the firing line. Because your, your boss can't ring up and say, if you hadn't booked me on a flight from the world's second busiest international airport, I would have arrived by now. But your boss can ring up from Newark or from London City and say, if you hadn't booked me from this sodding toy town airport, I'd, I'd have landed by now. Right. And so the extent to which once you understand that human behavior is driven by the fear of blame, then you realize that for business people and your staff to do anything imaginative or interesting, or to ask questions or to make decisions, you have to provide them with a degree of air cover and confidence, which is if they don't feel that they've got your back and if they don't feel they have permission to fail, basically nobody will do anything at all. Now, I'll, I'll tell you a related story to this, which I think is relevant, which is that um, Daniel Kahneman, uh, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist who won the Nobel Prize for economics, he once went to a board of directors and he said, um, this is a really interesting finding when you think about it. He said to each of them, one by one, because they were the heads of the various divisions of what I think was GE, although Daniel never named the company. Okay? And he ignored, leaves the CEO to one side for now, and he goes around the heads of you know, the huge metal things division and the finance division and the lighting division and the electronic division. And he says, I can offer each of you an option which gives you a 50% chance of increasing your profits by 50%, but it comes with a 30% chance that next year your profits will fall by 20%. So 50% of the time, you'll be better off by 50%. Something like 20 or 30% of the time, you'll be worse off by 20%. And you know the rest of the time, nothing will happen. Would you take those odds? And all but two of the boards of directors, department heads said no, because there's a 20 or 30 percent chance I get fired. OK, if my revenue goes down by 20 or 30 percent in a year, I'm going to lose my job. So even though on balance, we're going to be richer if I do this, it comes with the risk of catastrophe and therefore it's totally unacceptable. And the chief executive at the end of the room spots the disparity here. And he says, but I'd want all of you to do this because, yes, we're going to have two departments which underperform by 20 percent. OK, but half of the rest of you are going to be 50 percent better off. So net net, the company is going to be inordinately richer. And that's what happens when you divide responsibility. When you divide responsibility, you make people more and more risk averse as you go down to a point where they're incapable of exercising intelligent autonomy. So what do you do? What's your advice to people? What, how do you get over that bias? Well, with the airline one, you have to say, I want you to bring me Gatwick and Newark flights. And if I choose it, you have to say, if you choose this, you won't get blamed for doing something eccentric or interesting because the whole purpose of this is to do something eccentric or interesting. Yes. People taking penalties yes. tend to always try to kick for one side or the other because if you kick straight down the middle, oddly, you're more likely to score. And the reason for that is the goalkeeper knows that if he stands in the middle, although he's slightly more likely occasionally to save a goal by standing in the middle, if the ball goes either side of him, he looks useless and he gets blamed. So he has an overwhelming tendency to dive. And equally, the person taking the kick has an overwhelming tendency to try left or right, because failing when you shoot straight down the middle makes you look worse. 
Okay. The worst case scenario has a greater level of shame. Now, one way you could get around that is the manager of the team, you could say, you know, player one and player five, I want you to wang the ball straight down the middle. And if you miss, you can say afterwards, I told you to kick the ball straight down the middle. Okay. Yes. So framing something, because what's happened, you see, is that digital marketing should be as much used for experimentation as it is for optimization. But because the person is the digital marketing supremo who is bonused only on the efficiency of conversion that he obtains with digital marketing, the far more valuable role he could play in discovering things which are of use in the wider organization, okay, is minimized because he doesn't get any credit for that. In fact, to his boss, according to his job definition, that looks like waste. So you've got to say to this guy, okay, I'm only measuring you on the performance of 75% of your budget. On the other 25% of the budget, I'm going to measure you on whether you come back to me six times a year and go, we've discovered this really interesting shit, which could make us a fortune. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you don't don't actually ring fence or fire break different forms of responsibility and say, you're partly responsible for this, guys. And let's face it, you know, if we go bankrupt as a company because, you know, you're not doing the, you know, the day job, um, we're all going to lose our jobs anyway. But I don't expect you to do the, to maximize the day job exclusively to the eradication of far more valuable discoveries that might emerge through ancillary activities. So demanding that people focus exclusively on one metric, which is the standard measurement technique, is actually yes. a disaster because everything's a trade-off. Yes. Oh, that's brilliant. Pragmatic, actionable. Yeah. Yes. Um, story number three, Rory. That's an interesting one, which is when I first started experimenting with Zoom, I said to my staff, look, we've got this Zoom thing. I'm really happy for people to work flexibly. I'm what I said, you know, you want to go away to Ibiza for a week and you work, you know, you join all the meetings, and you come and join us. I'm not that bothered. You know, I'm not going to say what are you doing in Ibiza? You have to take five days vacation because if you're coming to meetings, and you're replying to your emails and doing all the remote stuff. And it used to annoy me that people used to get into the office early to do emails. I don't know if you noticed this. I said, if it's that urgent, do it the night before or get up early in the morning, do your emails, and then travel into work later. Right? It's also, it's almost like a cultural badge of honour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I hate Heading that. in early, leaving Pre- late. Presentee- presenteeism and that kind of costly signalling. Because yeah. the thing you've got to realise is that most people, the, the, the old joke is that people spend 30% of their time on their job and 70% on their career, you know. And there's a huge danger, I think, that we engage in signaling behaviors that are just there as proof of intention which are actually costly and not very valuable you know proof of commitment proof of enthusiasm you know that japanese business where nobody can leave the bloody office until their boss goes home so everybody's there until 11 o'clock at night you know that kind of nonsense and the trick there by the way which apparently they learned in the city do you know this is when you buy a suit you buy two jackets and you leave one of them over your chair Ah. And people assume you're there when you're not. I know people who do that. Yeah. (laughs) But the point about that activity is it's not economically valuable. It's not valuable to the company. It's valuable to the individual. And stamping on that is really important. Because I said, look, email's the same wherever you are. Why are you coming into an office to look at a screen which would look exactly the same 
you know, and, and if you genuinely believe it was urgent, I'd rather you stayed up until one o'clock in the morning and then came in at 11 o'clock, you know. And what I noticed is when I said to people you could do this, nobody did. And I realised they saw it as a perk. And they thought, well, I'll save that up in reserve. You know, I'll save up these brownie points so that when I really need a bit of flexible work, I can call in the favour. I said, no, 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 this isn't a favour. I actually want you to do this. And we've created Zoom Fridays. And I said, by default, as if you want to come into the office because your flatmates are psycho or because, you know, it's too noisy <laughs> at home or because you're lonely, you can come into the office. But on Fridays, the default is going to be work from home because I want to see how well this works. And it was only when I said, no, 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 you don't understand me. This isn't a privilege. This isn't a perk. I actively want this to be a norm one day a week so we can see what happens. Now, the, the, the unintended benefit of this was we were all online. Because I'd allowed people to work from home, they didn't grumble that much. I said, can, can you join an online meeting with uh, some people in California at um, eight o'clock in the evening? on a Wednesday. Now, I never make anybody do it. If they've got another commitment, they're free not to. I'm not going to do that. But I said, if you're free, you know, there's this kind of meeting which I'd love you to be at, but say if you don't want to. And the net, net effect of this is we started winning. You know, we won a few million dollars worth of business from parts of the world where we never envisaged there was any business potential. And part wow. of the reason was because you created this, you know, it, uh, partly, I think, with Silicon Valley firms, they'd rather meet you on a screen than face to face because they tend to be slightly introverted by temperament. But also, you see, we were always free at eight o'clock in the evening or six o'clock in the evening, typically. So if they called on, called on us for a meeting at short notice, we could always be free. And it actually, is common sense. It's yeah. actually, but, but it was fascinating to me, this, because I realised that nobody, why did it take a pandemic before we used this technology until we know the answer to that question? And it undoubtedly involves signalling, it involves norms, it involves defensive decision making, it involves presenteeism, it involves a lot of things. But it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for us to start to experiment with this. And the fact that it did, I think, should be to our everlasting shame. And so much of that, I think, is for you know, the kind of leaders that we're trying to help people be not. Well, people let, 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 who let, find it hard to trust their... I mean, if, if the end, you know, you're right. People talk about bring your whole self to work, be 100% yourself, but work from nine till five. It's like, no, 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 we're all different. It's like, personally, I get up at six o'clock in the morning and between geez. six and nine, I love it. Six to nine, I'm all on fire. Overcoming those... Toxic behaviours, defensive decision-making is one extreme of it. And the other extreme is what you might call presenteeism, which signals your eagerness and commitment, but which actually is ultimately economically wasteful. I mean, the number of business trips, which are just there, you know, I, I, to prove I care, Jürgen, I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning and fly to Frankfurt, OK, as evidence <laughs> of commitment. Well, I, you, you'd be more environmentally friendly to, ho to hold a Zoom call than to burn £50 notes. Uh, yes. on the screen to prove how much you care. Yes. Okay. And yeah, I've got to, I'm like you. I was using Zoom way before. Because, you know, you were, yeah. working globally, I was using Zoom years before. And but also, you, let's look at the application to people who don't live in London now have greater access to reasonable employment. Uh, for people with disabilities, what about retirees? Okay. How many, most people don't retire because they want to stop work. They retire because they want to stop commuting. Yep. 
Okay. So the extent to which it actually achieves a leveling up agenda, and also it can be potentially a large scale solution to the retirement crisis. If we can find useful applications for people who have an enormous skill set, you know, a special set of skills, as uh, Robert De Niro calls it, or whatever it is. Um, it isn't him, it's Liam Neeson, isn't it? I have a, yeah. But, um, <laughs> okay. But then, okay, there are a bunch of people, they've retired as accountants. They retired as accountants because they wanted to spend two months of the year in Portugal and because they didn't want to get up at seven o'clock in the morning and get on a crowded train. They're still good accountants, right? It's absolutely insane. I also think going from 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week to zero is probably unhealthy anyway. You should taper it. Yeah. Our our opportunity here to to reinvent work, but also to punt a huge amount of money back into the productive economy and away from the buy-to-let landlord economy, seems to me to be really priceless. And in the process of that, make people feel better about their lives. Yeah, absolutely right. (laughs) Because autonomy, autonomy is amazingly valuable to people for its own sake. Yes, because it makes you feel trusted. And one of the nicest things in the summer, by the way, and this is I'll end on a tip for your listeners. If it's a nice sunny day and you've got a Wi-Fi range extender that stretches into your garden, when you work out of doors, it doesn't really feel like work. Yes. One of the little tricks that I've found since COVID has happened is I do walk and talks. So I'll walk for an hour and I'll have a business meeting. My thinking is so much better. My creativity, my yep. ability to, to aggregate. I don't, I never want to change that. This has been the most extraordinary time of experimentation and future yes. work. Necessary too. So Rory, Rory, the very last thing I need to ask you is, what would you like your episode of Humans Needing Humans to be called? I suppose you could just call it Alchemy in the Workplace. Alchemy in the workplace. Brilliant. Not surprisingly, thank you so much for your time and Huge your pleasure. thinking and your expertise. I'll see you soon, Rory. Roger Wilco, see you soon. It's a pleasure. Been too Bye. long. Oh, thank you, Rory. I could genuinely talk to you all day. I do love doing these interviews. Guys, it doesn't matter whether you are a CMO or a CGO or a CHRO or a CEO. It doesn't matter what C you are. Your only job is to create environments where people thrive. That's it. It's really simple. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. You have been listening to humans, leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. If you are a senior marketing leader and you need the know-how and the networks and the inspiration to succeed and you're not already a member, I suggest you get over to their website and become part of that tribe. I would 100% recommend it. A massive Massive thanks to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to wearebeep.com to find out more about the Create Framework and how we support companies to unlock the problem-solving potential of the humans. If you love this podcast, pass it on to a friend, recommend it to a colleague, anyone you think might need a shot of inspiration. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. 
Please don't miss any more of this storytelling magic. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. And I look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>